The big takeaway from the summit is that Biden wants world leaders to fully vaccinate 70% of their population. And world leaders were like, okay, you first. The push for global vaccinations ramps up with the Delta variant still ripping around the world. The question is, when it comes to getting the shot, do we practice what we preach? Plus, no one likes paying bills, including apparently the U.S. government. With Congress deadlocked over the debt ceiling, the question is, can we write an IOU? And someone in New York City is a whole lot richer today. The winning lotto ticket for a $432 million jackpot was was bought at a pizza joint just around the corner. The question is, why did I get Chinese instead? It's way too early for this. Good morning, and welcome to Way Too Early, the show that has always been mindful of its own debt ceiling. I'm Jonathan Lemire. On this Thursday, September 23rd, we'll start with the news. The FDA has authorized a third dose of the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine for emergency use in people 65 and older, as well as those 18 and older who are at high risk of exposure to coronavirus or severe illness. The boosters are to be given at least six months after people receive their second dose of the vaccine. The decision by the FDA follows recommendations given last week by its key vaccine advisory committee. Americans 65 and older make up roughly 17% of the U.S. population, but account for more than 77% of all COVID deaths. The announcement comes as the CDC's advisory committee held the first day of a two-day meeting to debate the third shots, with a vote on the FDA's proposal scheduled for this afternoon. If they issue a recommendation and it is approved by the CDC, booster shots could begin immediately. Turning now to Capitol Hill, six former Treasury secretaries are warning Congress to raise or suspend the U.S. debt ceiling or else risk, quote, serious economic and national security harm. The officials from the Carter, Clinton, W. Bush, and Obama administrations wrote a letter to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi this week, which they also sent to other congressional leaders. They warned that if Congress does not take action, it could, quote, undermine trust in the full faith and credit of the United States, which they say would be hard to repair. Current Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is also pushing for congressional action, warning over the weekend of a historic financial crisis. The department estimates it will have enough cash on hand to pay for the government's bills through some point in October, but has not yet issued a specific date for when funds may run out. As Democrats scramble to cover the nation's debt before the country goes into default, Republican leadership is renewing its promise not to help. My advice to this Democratic government, the president, the House, and the Senate, don't play Russian roulette with our economy. Step up and raise the debt ceiling to cover all that you've been engaged in all year long. So no effort on their part to describe our position as irresponsible makes any sense because the facts are indisputable. Are you willing to let the government shut down, all of you? I I am not going to vote. Um, to raise the debt ceiling. All right, this is the decision the Democrats are going to make. Meanwhile, President Biden met with a parade of Democratic lawmakers in the Oval Office yesterday in an attempt to get the caucus to look past divisions and support his economic agenda. That includes the $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill and the $3.5 trillion spending bill. His first meeting was with Democratic leadership. 
He then spoke with a group of moderate Democrats, including key senators Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirshen Sinema of Arizona. His final meeting was with progressives. In attendance were Budget Committee Chair Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont and Progressive Caucus Leader Congresswoman Pramila Hayapal of Washington. The White House and Democratic leaders emerged from the meeting with positive outlooks. But the promised deadline to vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill is just days away. And several senators have come out in support of House progressives' plan to vote against that bill if reconciliation isn't done. Congresswoman Hayapal will join Morning Joe later to discuss the meeting. Joining us now, co-founder of Punchbowl News, Jake Sherman. He's an MSNBC political contributor. Jake, let's start right there. Walk us through, according to your reporting, your colleagues reporting, what progress was made, if any, at yesterday's meetings between President Biden and these various groups of Democrats? Well, John, they're talking. Talking is a good thing. Talking is a positive development. There's a lot to go over here. They are on different pages on nearly everything, including uh, the top line number. As you know, uh, 3.5 trillion is the number they're working off of. That will have to be paired back to something a lot smaller, closer to two or one or one and a half. Um, They didn't make any progress on that. And there's also a ton of policies outstanding when it comes to reconciliation and and, uh, taxes, Medicare, Medicaid. So just a, a whole host of issues. And and as you noted, there's this infrastructure vote on Monday and uh, progressives are threatening to bring it down uh, to, to vote against it in, in order to maintain their leverage on the larger package. This is typical capital behavior. It's not unusual. They will vote for this infrastructure bill at the end of the day. But Jayapal and, and the rest of the progressives suggest that they're not going to vote for infrastructure in, unless they know what the other package Package is going to look like. Yeah, we'll certainly know our first question for Congressman Jayapal when she is on Morning Joe in a little bit. Uh, Let's talk about that Monday vote. Is there any chance with these threats from the progressives that Speaker Pelosi could move it? She could. Yes, she absolutely could. It would have to be part of a larger deal that includes um, uh, some sort of guarantees on the reconciliation package. My guess is that they don't move it, John. We we spoke about this this morning. We wrote about this this morning in Punchbowl News AM, which is not out yet. So you all have to subscribe at punchbowl.news and read it. But there's no sense that Pelosi is going to move it. And there's no sense that Josh Gottheimer, with whom Pelosi cut the deal for that vote on September 27th, there's no chance that there's no sense that he will let her move it. So just a lot of moving pieces on that. And and um, frankly, he wants his vote. Pelosi promised it to him and he wants it. And that's not um, an un- that's not unusual behavior. Jake, I've got one more question for you. Let me read this story and get your reaction on the other side. Here's a warning to Democrats from a former chief of staff to President Bill Clinton. Unite to pass a spending bill or risk losing your congressional majorities next year. John Podesta, the founder and chair of the board of directors for the Center for American Progress, sent a memo to every Democratic member of Congress on Wednesday. His message to progressives was to scale down the price tag of the $3.5 trillion plan spending plan while calling out moderates who are only trying to pass a smaller infrastructure bill, saying you are either getting both bills or neither, and the prospect of neither is unconscionable. Podesta's warnings reflect a growing fear among some Democrats that if nothing is passed, the party will have little to run on in the midterm elections. So, Jake, what is, in fact, the political risk for Democrats in the midterms if this all falls apart, particularly if it falls apart in such spectacular fashion? This would be an own goal, right? This is Democrats. They control. I know the margins are narrow, but they control it all. If they can't get it done, 
What happens next year? So uh, it would be very bad, uh, clearly. Um, I, I think it's, it's extraordinarily possible that uh, neither of these bills get passed. I think that's that's in the realm of possibility. Um, John Podesta's comment is interesting, more, but not more interesting than Joe Manchin, who has said he won't vote for three and a half trillion. So um, that is the dynamic that we're, we're looking at is what will Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema and the moderates in the House vote for? Uh, that lines up with what what uh, Podesta saying here. Jake Sherman of Punchbowl News, as always, thank you, sir. Come back soon. Still ahead, is the Biden administration mending fences with France? We'll talk about a possible detente in that diplomatic dust-up. Way Too Early is coming right back. Join MSNBC's Simone Sanders Townsend, Michael Steele, and Alicia Menendez as they team up to host The Weeknd. We want to get the newsmakers, the people that are in the middle of what is happening. It's about the conversation. A lot of Americans check out of conversations. We want to check them in. Conversation we begin and that you continue all week long. The Weeknd, Saturdays and Sundays at 8 a.m. Eastern on MSNBC. What if millions of black Americans had been compensated for slavery? Join me, Tremaine Lee, as I explore the untold story of one of the only black Americans who ever was. I talk to his descendants and discuss how reparations forever change their family's trajectory and imagine a reality where reparations are paid to the rest of black America. Into America presents Uncounted Millions, The Power of Reparations, a Black History Month series. All episodes available now. The White House says President Biden and French President Emmanuel Macron will meet in Europe next month, following a diplomatic spat over the new U.S. submarine deal with Australia. The two leaders spoke on the phone yesterday for the first time since the deal was announced last Wednesday. In a joint statement afterwards, the White House wrote in part, quote, the two leaders agreed that the situation would have benefited from open consultations among allies on matters of strategic interest to France and our European partners. The two leaders have decided to open a process of in-depth consultations aimed at creating the conditions for ensuring confidence and proposing concrete measures towards common objectives. Reading between the lines in that statement, that feels like as close as the U.S. is going to get to publicly saying, we messed that up. France also says its ambassador to the U.S. will return to Washington next week after being recalled for the first time ever. The French ambassador was recalled on Friday in response to being left out of that deal between the U.S. and Australia, which the French foreign minister described as a, quote, knife in the back. Following yesterday's phone call between Presidents Biden and Macron, the two sides announced the ambassador's return, saying he will begin, quote, intensive work with senior U.S. officials. Now to the ongoing search for Brian Laundrie, a person of interest in the homicide investigation of his fiancée, Gabby Petito after her body was found near a national park in Wyoming. NBC News correspondent Katie Beck has more. The search at the swamp continues. A massive manhunt for Brian Laundrie, now a person of interest in the homicide investigation of his fiancée, Gabby Petito. We are trying to cover every acre in this preserve. 
all 25,000 of them. The vast area now a grid search by all-terrain vehicles, canines, and dive teams. So far, no sign of Laundry, who headed there more than a week ago with a backpack, according to his parents. You can't keep chocolate in Utah. Petito and Laundry had been documenting their cross-country trip since early August. Laundry returned to Florida without Petito September 1st. Her family reporting her missing 10 days later. What's going on? How come you're crying? Newly released police reports shedding more light on the couple's dispute while on the road. Uh, we drove by and the gentleman was slapping the girl. A witness statement from a second person who saw the altercation, telling police something seemed off. Officers stopped and questioned the couple, but no charges were filed. Karen Aberts lives across the street from the laundry's Florida home and recalls watching the couple as they outfitted their van for the trip. It seemed like, you know, your normal young couple just kind of hanging out. Aber says Laundry would routinely go on walks with his parents, sometimes with Gabby, too, who previously lived with them. Are you surprised that they didn't contact authorities sooner about Brian being missing? I can't imagine my kids saying that uh, I'm going for a hike and then two days later he's still not home. So to me, I, I would have been on the phone within hours after him not coming home. With Laundry still missing. Petito's family no closer to the answers they so desperately seek. Our thanks to NBC's Katie Beck for that report. Still ahead, a groundbreaking new policy will require vaccinations for all U.S. Olympians competing in Beijing this winter. That's story and a check on the weather. We come right back. Jen Psaki. Have you ever seen the House this dysfunctional? Rachel Maddow. If winning the election is his plan to stay out of prison, what happens in that election if and when he does not win it? Mondays, back to back. Talk about the stakes of this back and forth, given Trump's behavior. What do you make of the statement from Hamas? Why they're doing it? What, what do you think it means? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by the Rachel Maddow Show at 9 p.m. Eastern, Mondays on MSNBC. U.S. athletes vying to compete at the upcoming Winter Olympics in Beijing will need to be fully vaccinated against COVID-19. In a letter announcing the new policy obtained by the AP, the CEO of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee says starting November 1st, the organization will require staff, athletes, and others utilizing U.S. OPC facilities to be vaccinated. It says the requirement will also apply to the full Team USA delegation at future Olympic and Paralympic Games. According to the team website, athletes will have to show proof of vaccination by December 1st. Neither the U.S. nor the International Olympic Committee's mandated vaccinations for the Tokyo Olympics this past summer. And the IOC has not indicated it will introduce a mandate for the Winter Games. According to Yahoo Sports, roughly 100 of Team USA's more than 600 athletes competed in Tokyo while unvaccinated. While the IOC estimates about 85% of all athletes in the Olympic Village in Tokyo had been vaccinated. Turning now to Major League Baseball and an escalation of tension between two teams that could meet in the playoffs in a couple of weeks. To St. Petersburg, Florida, where Rays outfielder Kevin Kiermaier was hit in the back with a pitch during last night's eighth inning against the Blue Jays. Kiermaier had sparked controversy after picking up and keeping a scouting card that had fallen from the wristband of Toronto's catcher during the game the night before. He stared at the mound and he was escorted to first base and later said he believed the pitch was intentional. Yeah, probably. It prompted both benches to spill out onto the field before Toronto's reliever was ejected from the game. 
The AL East leading Rays would go on to win 7-1, and they clinched a spot in the postseason for the third year in a row. At Yankee Stadium in the Bronx, New York completed a three-game sweep of the Texas Rangers with a 7-3 win last night before they head to Fenway Park for a pivotal series against the Red Sox. I don't plan to sweep, sleep this weekend. The Sox streaked to their seventh win in a row with last night's 12-5 victory over the Mets thanks to a heroic effort by Kyle Schwarber. Boston has a two-game lead over the Yankees atop the AL wildcard standings, while the Blue Jays, they slid a half game out of playoff contention. On the West Coast, we do care about the West Coast here. The Giants expand their lead atop the National League West, capitalizing on the Dodgers' loss to the Rockies earlier in the night with an 8-6 win over the Padres. L.A. falls two games behind San Francisco in the division. Meanwhile, the Cardinals extend their longest streak since 2001, defeating the Milwaukee Brewers 10-2 for an 11th win in a row. St. Louis, all but certain of going to the playoffs now, they've got a four-and-a-half game lead for the second National League wildcard spot. And finally, an unexpected visit to the mound at a minor league game in Trenton, New Jersey. After rookie, the bat dog, ran onto the field in the middle of it at bat. He, oh, you're still a good boy, rookie. He caused a brief delay in play before returning the dugout with a baseball. You know, Bill Karens, I wouldn't mind dogs being a part of most <laughs> baseball games. Uh, they could run out, they could pick the bats, they could pick the balls, maybe bring concessions to those in the fans. Uh, what do we got for uh, the forecast today, Bill? Um, yeah, no, yeah, dogs at the park are good, especially those do- the days when the minor league, when they bring your dogs to the park days. Yeah. Uh, those are fun, too, if you've ever done that. Um, so, yeah, we've had some problems around Washington, D.C. overnight. We've had a lot of heavy rain. Uh, we were mentioning this threat over the last couple of days, and now it's moved into the northeast. Uh, and it does look like it's going to cause some additional problems today. So even watch out around New York City later on this evening for your evening drive home. So uh, the storm itself is located over the top of Detroit and Cleveland, but the tropical moisture is coming in off the Atlantic and a lot of heavy rain ahead of that cold front from D.C. all the way through central Pennsylvania. We do have some flood warnings around Washington, D.C. and a flash flood warning around Hagerstown. In all, we got about 35 million people included in this flash flood watch, mostly because of the 10 million people in and around New York City are included in this. We do not expect this to be like you know, an Ida situation, which we had, you know, two, three weeks ago. But isolated areas will get some very heavy rain. One to three inches expected kind of everywhere in the yellow and in the orange. Isolated totals could be up to five inches. So if we get five inches of rain anywhere in a short period of time, we will see some flash flooding in those areas. So we'll watch the Poconos, the Catskills. The mountainous areas are always most at risk and the urban areas because of the poor runoff and drainage issues. So for today's forecast, Heavy rain moving through the northeast, but if you look at the rest of the country, this is our first full fall day, and it looks really nice from the middle of the country all the way through the Great Lakes. Florida's still pretty warm and tropical and humid. You'll get some thunderstorms in Miami late today. Still pretty hot in Phoenix, but we'll get you your cooler weather in the days ahead. And as we go through Friday, the rain will be exiting the northeast in New England. Kind of a cool, crisp morning in the northern plains. And this weekend forecast looking pretty nice, coast to coast. Not many complaints at all. You like to see that word refreshing after a hot summer and into Sunday, pretty nice and sunny with above average temperatures, most locations, Jonathan. So uh, once we get through this heavy rain event in the northeast in the next 24 hours, a really nice first fall weekend for just about everyone. Bill Cairns will be sure to bring our umbrellas today, but that weekend sounds like a nice payoff. Thank you so much. Coming up, police reform was one area where it actually seemed like bipartisanship was possible. But those talks have now fallen apart. And they leave big questions about that hot button issue. We'll talk about it straight ahead. But before we go to break, we want to know, 
Why are you awake? Email your reasons to waytooearly at msnbc.com or tweet me at John Lemire using the hashtag waytooearly. We'll read our favorite answers later in the show, particularly if they're about a bat talk. Welcome back to Way Too Early. It's coming up on 5.30 on the East Coast, 2.30 out West. I'm Jonathan Lemire. Despite the nationwide protests following the murder of George Floyd last year, negotiations for a bipartisan police reform bill ended yesterday without a deal. Democratic Senator Cory Booker made the announcement. I had a quick conversation with Tim Scott. We weren't making progress, uh, any more meaningful progress on establishing uh, really substantive reform to Americans' policing. The effort from the very beginning was to get police reform that would raise professional standards, police reform that would create a lot more transparency, and then police reform that would create accountability. And we were not able to come to agreements on those three big areas. Republican Senator Tim Scott provided his view of the impasse in a statement that read, in part, quote, I offered to introduce a bill that included our areas of compromise a bill that activists and law enforcement alike could have supported. Despite having plenty of agreement, Democrats said no because they could not let go of their push to defund our law enforcement. NBC News reports the final slimmed-down proposal from Democrats would have added funds to police departments for mental health services and data collection. But Senator Scott's office said the provision to withhold grants from departments that do not fully report use of force encounters would cut off a crucial stream of funding. Both senators said the work to reach a bill that can pass must continue. And we'll hear more from Senator Booker about this a little later on when he joins Morning Joe. Many Haitian immigrants who spent days living under a bridge in Del Rio, Texas, will be allowed to enter the United States. That's according to two U.S. officials speaking to the Associated Press. This, despite the administration stressing the border is closed to migrants and is ramping up deportation flights. Haitian officials said 10 such flights have arrived to the island nation from Sunday to Tuesday in planes designed for 135 passengers. Six of those flights carried 713 migrants combined. The Biden administration is exempting unaccompanied children from expulsion flights on humanitarian grounds. Meanwhile, NBC News is reporting the White House is looking for a government contractor to run a migrant holding center at the U.S. naval base at Guantanamo Bay. The island has a facility on the base with the ability to hold more than 100 people. But the administration says they have no plans to use the facility for Haitian migrants. DHS says it, quote, is not and will not send Haitian nationals being encountered at the southwest border to the Migrant Operations Center in Guantanamo Bay. Joining us now, national political correspondent for Politico, Sabrina Rodriguez. Good morning, Sabrina. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, The Biden administration has been receiving criticism from both parties over how they've handled the border. What is your latest reporting? I know you've been following this closely on the situation in Del Rio, Texas. I mean, at the moment, we're seeing the criticism of the Biden administration isn't going anywhere. Um, I would say that from the beginning of this administration, we've had many points of of seeing focus on the border, and this is by far the one that's getting the most attention. Um, There's still thousands of mostly Haitian migrants at the border. They've been able to to clear out, you know, a few thousand of about 14,000. 
um, in the past couple of days. And they're really trying to draw attention to the deportation flights that they're doing. But quietly, we know that they're also letting thousands of the migrants um, stay in the United States and seek asylum. They're just trying to, to not draw attention to it at this point. And is there any sense about how the conditions are there? We've certainly heard in recent days about some of it was rather squalid. And we, of course, saw the photos of your officers on horseback uh, treating the migrants, potentially even with with whips or using things like whips. Uh, What's your sense of where things stand into that investigation and just how things look on the ground right now? Well, we've seen definitely an uptick in, you know, humanitarian organizations trying to step in and and help, whether it's, you know, World Food Kitchen or or just outside groups that are trying to figure out ways to, to help inside of this makeshift camp. Because the reality is that for days now, we have heard the complaint consistently from from folks that are covering this along the border, hearing Haitian migrants saying, you know, we don't have food, we don't have water, um, the conditions are obviously not good. And we're talking about Texas in, you know, September, where it's 60 degrees at night, but then it gets incredibly hot at d- during the daytime, and they're just outside under a bridge at this point. Yeah, these were reins being used as, as whips and the really shocking footage uh, that obviously horrified. Uh, we heard from the reactions from White House Press Secretary Saki, uh, the Homeland Security Secretary, among others. Uh, now that the immigration has been flagged in the reconciliation bill and the parliamentarian says it can't be included, is there any sense on Capitol Hill for a plan B on immigration? Yeah, at this point, you know, Democrats are trying to argue that, you know, they're going to be going back to the Senate parliamentarian. But as one aide mentioned to me, you know, in the past days, you know, it's not looking good if plan A doesn't work. It's not looking good if they were banking on plan A working. And sure, they have a plan B, C and D, uh, many, many Senate Democrats are saying, but it's going to be a tough sell with the Senate parliamentarian. And at this point, there's a lot of behind the scenes conversations that are happening, seeing if potentially they could narrow down how many people they're offering pathway to citizenship, if, you know, they can frame it as just changing a date in the registry. Um, So they're trying to figure out how to get it done. But, um, you know, there is some level of of realism that it could be a tough sell to, to actually make it happen. Politico, Sabrina Rodriguez, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Please come back soon. Still ahead, the totally different lineup taking the stage right above us here at 30 Rock. Saturday Night Live unveils the show's upcoming hosts and musical guests. And there are a few surprises. Way too early, back in a moment. Time now for something totally different. Calling all tiny 007 fans. Aston Martin, the maker of the full-size DB5, which is arguably the most famous James Bond car, has teamed up with the little car company to make a tiny version. The DB5 Junior No Time to Die edition is made to 66% scale with an all-electric powertrain that can reach speeds up to 45 miles per hour. The vehicle comes with all of Q's special gadgets, including a cycling digital license plate to maintain your cover, a hidden gadget panel to release smokescreen for a fast getaway, and twin miniguns in the headlights without ammunition. While designed with children in mind, the car is big enough to fit a full-size kid at heart. The vehicle starts at $120,000 and includes admission to the Aston Martin Club. If only I had won that lottery, money would go there. And what better place to store a tiny car than perhaps parked outside a tiny house? Boston's famous Skinny House is making headlines for selling for an eye-catching $1.2 million. 
The historic four-story home in the city's north end is only 10 feet wide. It is two bedrooms, one bathroom, and a view of Boston Harbor. Legend has it the two brothers owned this plot of land in the 1800s. When one joined the army, the other built a large house that took up most of their land. And when the other brother returned, he built the skinny house to block his siblings' view and sunlight. <laughs> That's pretty great. Uh, season 47, meanwhile, of Saturday Night Live is just over a week away. And the show has announced its lineup of hosts and musical guests for the first four episodes. Owen Wilson will host season premiere on October 2nd with Casey Musgraves as the musical guest. A week later on October 9th, Kim Kardashian West will make her debut as host with Halsey joining as the musical guest. Oscar winner Remy Malek will host on October 16th as Young Thug takes over the musical stage. And returning to his roots, Emmy winner for Ted Lasso, Jed Jason Sudeikis, will return to Studio 8H for the first time as host on October 23rd. Sudeikis was a cast member on the show from 2003 to 2013. Brandi Carlisle, with a much-anticipated new album due out next week, will make her first appearance as musical guest on Sudeikis' show. A rare self-portrait by Mexican artist Frida Kahlo is going up for auction in November and is estimated to bring in a record $30 million, according to Sotheby's. Diego Iyo is the last of Kahlo's famous self-portraits, featuring the tearful artist with an image of her husband, Diego Rivera, painted on her forehead. Sotheby says the work is from 1949, when Rivera was having an affair with one of Kahlo's friends. The expected $30 million sale would break multiple art market records as the most expensive work by a Latin American artist and the second most expensive painting by a female artist after Georgia O'Keeffe's White Flower Number 1. One lucky person is celebrating a big win this week. As we've been telling you, the Mega Millions Lottery, whose jackpot sat at $432 million, appears to have a single grand prize winner. Lottery officials say the ticket was purchased at a New York pizzeria that hits close home to us. Pronto Pizza in Manhattan just steps away from our studio in Rockefeller Center. The odds of winning were one in over 300 million, according to New York lottery officials. The winner will get to choose to cash out with a lump sum of $315 million or receive payments spread out over decades. No word yet on the identity of the winner, but we'll get a clue if Willie Geist doesn't show up today. Still ahead, a check-in with a leading health expert as the pandemic pushes the U.S. to its highest daily death total in six months. Way too early. It's coming right back. The nation is once again reporting more than 2,000 COVID-19 deaths per day, a number the U.S. had not seen in more than six months. According to data from the Johns Hopkins University, as of Tuesday, the seven-day average of reported COVID deaths nationwide stands at 2,031. The last time the average daily U.S. death toll was over 2,000, was on March 1st of this year. At this rate, an American dies for COVID-19 every 43 seconds. On Monday, COVID-19 officially became the deadliest outbreak in recent American history, surpassing the estimated U.S. death toll from the 1918 Spanish flu. Joining us now, founder and CEO of Advancing Health Equity, Dr. Uche Blackstock. She is an MSNBC medical contributor, and we are always happy when she is on the show. Uh, let's start with the FDA and the booster shots. We talked about it earlier in the show. It has approved Pfizer shots on an emergency basis for people 65 and over, and some with in special circumstances. What's your take on the latest in the booster shot debate? 
Well, good morning, Jonathan. I definitely think that the recommendation and the approval by the FDA makes a lot of sense evidence-wise. The data that we're seeing is that there is waning immunity um, of the vaccines, especially the Pfizer vaccine, uh, six to eight months out. And we're seeing that especially among the elderly. We're seeing more through more breakthrough disease among this population in particular. And I think also to specify people that are high risk for exposure, uh, people who are healthcare workers who received their vaccine earlier in the year makes tremendous sense. And I think that we just have to make sure that we are being transparent as possible with the public about the messaging around the boosters, because I know it's been quite confusing. So let's talk about Florida's new Surgeon General. He's a Harvard-educated doctor who opposes both mask and vaccine mandates. You went to medical school with him. We saw your note on Twitter about it. Give us your sense. Tell us, the viewers, what's your reaction to his appointment? Well, you know, what, what I will say is that, you know, obviously he is a very bright individual. He has the educational pedigree. However, someone who's bright and has that educational pedigree <clears throat> can still uh, spread misinformation. And, you know, he's been outwardly uh, supportive of unproven medical treatments like hydroxychloroquine and uh, ivermectin. Um, He is against mask mandates, although we have data showing that masks are effective um, in schools and and other indoor locations. And he's also discouraging vaccinations, which I think is incredibly um, dangerous. We know that vaccinations are one solution to getting out of this pandemic. We also know that there are very profound racial inequities in in vaccine uptake. So the person who's delivering that messaging is incredibly important. And as a a black physician, I think it could be potentially harmful for him to be disseminating uh, misinformation. Um, And and so I think that it's not a surprise that uh, Governor DeSantis chose Dr. Latipo, uh, I think it was a very strategic move. And I think he chose someone that he didn't have to convince of his anti-science messaging. Dr. Latipo already agrees with it. Dr. Blackstock, really important point there. We started the segment noting where the U.S. death total is and what a depressing statistic that here we are back to where we were in March in terms of the number of deaths uh, per day. This comes at a seemingly interesting moment in the pandemic. We want to get your assessment, which seems like the Delta, although deaths are still up, the number of cases are starting to decline. There's some hope anyway. The Delta variant wave may have peaked, but we're also heading into the fall, into the winter. And viruses, right. particularly this one, tend to spread better when the weather is colder. Where do we where do things stand right now? The U.S. battle against this virus. Right. Right, Jonathan. And I think that we're seeing in terms of the, the modeling and predictions that we'll probably have another wave later this fall and, and into the winter because we know that the virus thrives in cold, dry weather. We know that more people will be indoors in higher risk settings. We know that school will be also Um, in full swing. And so we've seen this before in other countries where there is a wave initially with Delta, um, that the wave may resolve a little bit and then there's another surge. And so I I would say that we all have to still be very, very cautious. Um, The mitigation strategies will be more important than ever this fall and winter, especially with Delta being the predominant variant. And people will just have to be on their guard. Dr. Uche Blackstock, thank you for that warning and for being here today. Earlier in the show, we asked all of you, why are you awake? Allie in Chicago says, I've got to meet a work deadline after procrastinating too much this week, AKA watching Ted Lasso. I'm really questioning my decision-making abilities. Allie, I am with you. I'm supposed to be writing a book. Nah, mostly watching Ted Lasso. 
Jen emails, my hubby is in Austria on business. He just passed his COVID test so he can come home. Well, that's certainly good news. DJ tweets, one of our cats, Dale, cannot start his day without being updated on important events. Dale, thanks for watching. I hope the segment about the bat dog didn't upset you. And Sandra shares this, I'm awake because I just got this pic via text, my dude grandson. Congratulations, that is the best possible way and reason to be up, unless you won that lottery. Up next, a look at the Axios One Big Thing. And coming up on Morning Joe, we'll hear from two of the lawmakers who met with President Biden yesterday to discuss his economic agenda, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal and Senator Cory Booker. Plus, a member of the House Leadership Committee, Congressman Hakeem Jeffries will join the conversation. Morning Joe, just a few moments away. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? Evangelical pastor and director of Vote Common Good, Doug Padgett, on the rise of Christian nationalism and what's at stake in this year's election. We lack a story in this country about what our politics are supposed to achieve. And when we suggest to them that the common good can be your voting identity, rather than being Republican or being a Democrat or being fiscally this or that, big government or small government, but you care about the common good, people are like, oh yeah, that that I actually care about. That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and subscribe.